Good morning, church. So I think we all knew that uh, over the next few weeks we'd be talking about some controversial things. I don't think anybody thought it'd be so controversial that the pastor would pass it off to a different person and then leave town. <laughs> but here we are. Now, he, uh, when it came up, I, uh, I volunteered. Um, as uh, Pastor David said last week, uh, it's what I know best, politics and religion. My bachelor's is in political science with an emphasis in theory. And my master's is in theological studies. I do uh, rent out my services for parties coming into the holiday season. If you need to be in bed by 10, you let me know. By 9.30, I'll show up and make sure everybody's cleared out. <clears throat> uh, man, I'm glad you guys are in good humor today. Well, uh, so I'm going to start with another joke. How about that? Uh, so a senator walks into a restaurant. It's a nice steakhouse in the D.C. area, and he says, I'll have the surf and turf. And the waiter brings him a big steak and a lobster tail, a big basket of yeast rolls. The waiter says, is everything okay? And he says, actually, I just I need a little butter for the rolls. And the waiter nods his head, walks away. About 10 minutes go by, no butter. Waiter walks by again, and he grabs his attention, and he says, he says, yes, sir, what can I do for you? And he goes, can I get that butter? And the waiter nods his head and walks away. About 10 minutes later, still no butter. The waiter walks by with a pitcher of water, and the senator grabs him by the arm. And he says, son, do you know who I am? He says, I'm a senator in the U.S. Congress. He says, I uh, graduated from an Ivy League school with three degrees in business, economics, politics, magna cum laude, two-time All-American basketball. I also played a couple of seasons for the Knicks. I'm on three Senate committees, including the Senate Intelligence Committee. Who do you think you are? And the waiter looks at him and he says, you know who I am? I'm the guy in charge of the butter. Sometimes, <clears throat> we're often in charge of more than we really think we are. We have power to do things that we don't think we had. One of those things is what we talk about and what we discuss when we're in church. We have a lot more power to discuss things than, than we think we do. When we talk about politics and religion, um, it's not often, I can't ask that in church in the sense that it's going to offend people or it'll upset people. Um, some people think you literally just can't say anything about politics in church. I hope that's not true because that's what we're talking about today. Um, but what, what comes to mind, what's in everybody's kind of collective memory um, are a couple of different concepts, and I'm going to start off by talking about those and, and why it is exactly... <clears throat> It's okay to talk about this stuff. Uh, uh, the first thing is the Johnson Amendment. You may not know it by name, um, but you kind of know it by concept. Uh, the Johnson Amendment. Here comes the boring jargon. It's a, uh, 
It's an amendment to the tax code, the IRS tax code, under the Section 501c3 nonprofit section that says, as a church, we don't have to pay taxes. Uh, President Johnson added an amendment that stated, essentially, we can't participate actively in the political process. Essentially, we're prohibited from conducting political campaign activities or intervening in the election of public office, um, i.e., I can't have a political rally here for a specific candidate. I can't run a vote drive out of the church um, for or against a candidate. Um, we can still do things like get out the vote drives where we register people to vote. We can, uh, we can have a polling place at a church. Um, we can participate those ways, but we can't come out in favor of a specific political idea or especially not a specific candidate. Um, so I won't be talking about specific candidates today because A, that's not what my sermon's about, and B, I can't. So <clears throat> the other thing is this concept of the separation of church and state. Again, great big giant concept. We kind of all know what it means, um, but let me give you the background on it. Um, the phrase separation between church and state is generally traced back to 1802, just after the birth of our country, Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association uh, in Connecticut, and a newspaper in Massachusetts actually published the writing. In it, Jefferson says, I contemplate with sovereign reverence the act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, First Amendment Constitution. Thus, building a wall of separation between church and state. He's referencing something called the Establishment Clause. It essentially was our way of thumbing our noses at the British and saying, I know you guys have a state church. We're not going to do that here. Um, the, what it said was that Congress could not make any laws that affected our religious life in this country. That as long as we don't affect other people's physical lives, we're not hurting anybody, um, we're, not, we're not disadvantaging anybody, we can do what we want religiously, um, and they can't make laws about that. And honestly, I think, I, I think it's best, um, this concept of a separation between church and state, because it means we just don't interfere with each other. I leave you alone, you leave me alone sort of thing. Um, it, it essentially means the government can't tell us how or when or who to worship. And it means that as, as a church, as a religion, we can't tell the state what to do in society. Um, which is great, honestly, because if you think about it, if you're in the majority, it's great to be in power. But if you're not, then it's kind of rough. I mean, can you imagine if the Seventh-day Adventists got a hold of religious calendars in this country, and then we all had to have church on Saturday, and then I'd never see another OU game again? <laughs> It's terrible if you're in the minority. Um, so it's best, I think, if we, if we don't interfere with the goings-on of the government and they stay away from us. I keep my hand out of your pocket. You keep your hand out of mine. So we know we can't support particular candidates or parties as a church, and we can't try and influence our government based on our religious beliefs. While we can talk about politics... In general, the question then is, should we? Should we participate in the process? 
Um, one of the spiritual and theological founding fathers of our faith tradition, John Wesley, uh, was on a boat trip from England, and he um, fell in with a group of German immigrants called the Moravians. Um, again, if you don't know church history, the name means nothing to you. They're modern-day Amish. That's who they were. Um, so they came over, they became the Amish and the Mennonites. Um, and he talked to them a lot about their, their uh, essential non-participation in politics. And to this day, Amish and Mennonites have no participation in politics. They don't even, for the most part, uh, uh, register to vote. They don't vote, they don't run for office um, if they're part of the stricter sects. Um, so we talked to them a lot. So a lot of our theological and spiritual founding is, is based in not necessarily apolitical or non-political tradition, but kind of distancing ourselves um, from politics. The, the Church of God actually has a statement on their website um, that explains that the earliest, the earliest movements in the church to, to establish the Church of God uh, were more towards the establishment and care of what they call God's kingdom. Um, we weren't apolitical, just cautious about political participation, more focused on God's creation than, say, gaining political influence. I can stand up here and lecture all day about politics because I like politics, but we're in church. Um, so let's look at some scriptures and let's answer some of these questions. Let's think about what authority looks like uh, like, what authority does the government actually have over us? If we're here to establish God's kingdom, then who really is in charge? We should also look at who we give our allegiance to. Um, one question I hear a lot is, is there one party that's more Christian than another party? I always get that in hushed tones. Who should I vote for? Ah, well, that's not, it's not for me to answer. That's for you to find out, but we'll talk about that. Uh, Let's talk about parties. I wish this was a funner party that we're talking about, but we're talking about political parties. Um, let's talk about the two-party system. Man, there are problems with the two-party system, uh, both socially and with the church. Uh, it creates what philosophers and logicians call, uh, logicians, it sounds like, you know, pull a rabbit out of a hat. Um, but it, it creates something called a false dichotomy. Um, that's a logical fallacy. It essentially creates a situation in which you must choose one thing or the other. Because we have two major political parties, when you walk into a voting booth nine times out of 10, 90% of the time, you've got one of two choices. So we're presented with a choice that we have to make, 50-50, one or the other, when in reality that may not represent exactly what we believe. Studies show that most people in this country and even around the world are actually moderate. If you, if you actually put political beliefs on a spectrum, left to right, uh, liberal to conservative, um, you're not going to find people on the fringes. It actually creates a bell curve. Most people are somewhere in the middle with beliefs that fall somewhere on both sides of the spectrum. So you see how that false dichotomy kind of, kind of raises some issues. One thing that always comes to mind is that uh, we used to talk about in political science class, there's a big difference between a Montana, uh, Montana Republican and an Oklahoma Republican. Um, 
You may not think so at first, but you know Montana Republicans, um, they're big hunters and they're outdoorsmen, so they dig on Second Amendment rights, like a lot of Republicans are, right? Um, huge fans of the EPA, though. Like, they love environmental protection in Montana, um, but it's because their entire economy is based on nature. And so um, the last thing they want is somebody coming in and putting in a factory on one of the pristine rivers. They don't want drilling there. They don't, because they make all of their money on wilderness. You start putting factories and plants in there, then all of a sudden they can't make money anymore. So a Montana Republican and an Oklahoma Republican comes from an oil and natural gas state. They have some very different views on business and environmental protection. Just like, say, a Vermont Democrat and an Oklahoma Democrat, or say a New York Democrat, for instance. Vermont Democrats are very socially liberal. Um, if you know Bernie Sanders, that's his state. Um, also surprising to most people, they like guns in Vermont, like a lot, like a whole lot. Um, New York Democrats, probably not so much, you know? Um, so what we find out is that as you look at this political spectrum, even across this country, people fall on different sides of this middle line, not one side or, or the other, but somewhere in between. The other thing it does is it forces us to support things in name that we don't really believe in. Case in point, uh, does anybody, has anybody heard the name Arthur Jones? Probably not. <laughs> He's running for a congressional district in the third district in Chicago. He's running as a Republican. Um, but ironically, the Illinois GOP, the Republican Party in Illinois, is not giving him any money. And as a matter of fact, they have actively tried to find ways to end his campaign. <laughs> you have to have over a thousand signatures. They actually sent people out to verify the signatures, his own party, quote unquote, his own party, to see if they could get him off the ballot. Now, this sounds weird, um, but let me explain. In the Chicago area, they didn't actually run a Republican candidate for that district. Heavily fortified Democratic area. A guy named Dan Lipinski is the incumbent. He's super popular there. They thought, honestly, best use of money, let's not even run anybody in District 3. Dan's probably going to win, and we'll move on. This guy, Arthur Jones, caught wind. And he realized that he only needed 1,300 signatures or so. He got his 1,300 signatures. He said, I'm running as a Republican, third district. People signed off because they didn't actually know Arthur. And, you know, they said, OK, sounds good. We need to run somebody, right? They didn't, if you didn't like Dan Lipinski, then, then you wanted to run somebody. Problem is, and I say this in all seriousness, our buddy Arthur's a Nazi, like literally. Like, wears a uniform, card-carrying member of the American Nazi Party, and a self-proclaimed white supremacist. No wonder the Illinois Republican Party is saying, that guy's not with us. <laughs> He's got an R next to his name. That's not us, right? But Arthur found a loophole in the election laws. You don't actually have to have the support of a political party in the city you're running in, especially not in Chicago. You just have to get the signatures and tell them you're a Republican, which he did. In reality, we know our buddy Arthur's not a Republican. He's, he's a Nazi. But apparently Nazis aren't allowed on the ballot in Chicago, and so he ran as a Republican. 
No Republicans I know agree with this man, right? But when you, when you line these two up, it still says Arthur Jones, Republican. When we adhere to one party or the other, when we say, I'm a Democrat no matter what, or I'm a Republican no matter what, what you're doing is you're pigeonholing yourself and forcing yourself to say, I support these things in name, in reality, that's not me. Because of a two-party system, sometimes our values as citizens, and especially our values as Christians, are often misrepresented or simply just not represented at all. I don't know of a single card-carrying Republican that would vote for Arthur Jones because he doesn't represent what they believe. There's a New York Times article um, by, the, by the pastor and writer Tim Keller and it was entitled, How Do Christians Fit Into a Two-Party System? They Don't. Clever title. In, in this article, he makes an argument for not aligning ourselves with any one single political party. He says, while believers can register under a party affiliation and be active in politics, they should not identify, identify the Christian church or faith with a political party as the only Christian one. See, oh, just kidding, just kidding. You'll have to listen. It's not on the board. One of the reasons he gives for this, this argument is that, quote, it gives those considering the Christian faith the strong impression that to be converted, they need not only to believe in Jesus, but also to become a member of the fill-in-the-blank party. Look, our goals as a, as a church are to show people Christ and bring them into the kingdom. I don't, I mean, I didn't check voter registration when you came in this morning. I don't really care voter registration. I mean, I hope you're registered to vote, but I don't really care what the little letter next to your name says, quite frankly. No one's checking your affiliation to come into church, and it should never be that way. Our goal is to show people Christ, bring them into his kingdom. And we can't actually let politics or anything stand in the way of bringing people into the church. So when we put a political party up on a pedestal as a church, what we're doing is saying, you have to adhere to these beliefs and these values in order to come in. When in reality, all they need to do to come in is come in. You got to get up and get, well, I mean, put clothes on. You do that. Get up, put clothes on, and come here. I don't even care. I'm wearing jeans this morning. We're good. We can't put one political party over another and say that it represents the Christian faith because we know that it doesn't, and it keeps people out of church. The second argument he makes is, most political positions are not matters of biblical command, but of practical wisdom. The problems that exist, he says, are mandated in the Bible for us to solve problems like um, homelessness and, and feeding the hungry and caring for the downtrodden. Those things were mandated to take care of. Christ says those are problems we need to solve. But the practical steps that are needed to do that are often not mentioned at all. Right? Christ says there's this problem and the solution is y'all fix it. <laughs> okay. As people, we try and nitpick our way through problems. We want step-by-step -step instructions. We want people to hold our hands. And unfortunately, the Bible doesn't a lot of times give us those instructions. 
And that's really where the crux of the matter is, right? We're mandated to take care of these things biblically, but practically sometimes we don't know how to take care of things like racism and poverty and oppression. Those things need to be solved, but the way we do it isn't so clear. Tim tells this story about a friend of his. He says, I know of a man from Mississippi who was a conservative Republican and a traditional Presbyterian. He visited the Scottish Highlands and found the churches there as strict and as orthodox as he had hoped. I love that phrase. No one so much as turned on a television on Sunday. Newsflash, they don't really play soccer on Sunday, so that wasn't a big surprise. Everyone memorized catechisms and scripture, but one day he discovered that the Scottish Christian friends he had admired were, in his view, socialists. Their understanding of government economic policy and the state's responsibilities was by his lights extremely left-wing, yet also grounded in their Christian conviction. He returned to the United States not more politically liberal, but in his words, humbled and chastened. For he realized that thoughtful Christians, all trying to obey God's call, could reasonably appear at different places on the political spectrum with loyalties to different political strategy. In essence, what he's saying is we're trying to solve the same problems a lot of times, but when politics get involved, the strategies change. Our need to act on social problems is absolutely mandated by Christ. Just read Matthew chapters 5 through 7, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, and you see who God calls on us to help, the poor in spirit, the grieving, those who are downtrodden for their attempts to make peace, those that are persecuted. You fast forward to Matthew 25, and we see the parable of the sheep and the goats and Christ telling us, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. We're plainly told that we must help out those in need. But what we let divide us is the method that we use. Look, I don't, I don't have an answer. Um, I have opinions, you know, is it smaller government, is it more government? This isn't the time or the place for me to stand here and lecture you. If I ever start teaching politics at a community college, I'll be more than happy to take your money. You can listen to my opinion all day. <laughs> I don't know, I have, I have ideas, but there is a reason that I'm standing here preaching today and not running for office somewhere else. I have ideas, I don't know for sure. The third and final issue that, that Keller discusses is this idea of package deal ethics. He says, increasingly political parties insist that you cannot work on one issue with them if you don't embrace all of their other approved positions. It's just what we talked about before. There's not a single political platform that encompasses our true beliefs, really as citizens and especially not as Christians. I know people... I know people who are pro-Second Amendment and pro-regulation. I know people who are pro-environment, but are also pro-business and pro-economic growth. I know people who are pro-police and they're pro-reform. You're never going to find a politician or a political party that encompasses all of your beliefs. I guarantee it. 
There will certainly never be a single party that ever fulfills the message of the gospel of Christ. We talk a lot at this church about blood issues and pen issues and pencil issues. And if you're willing to make politics a blood issue, then we might have an issue. Because in my opinion, there are only a few blood issues in the church. The gospel says we have to love God, we have to believe Christ, we have to love our neighbors, and we have to share that message. That's a hill I'm willing to die on. We can fill in the others with pen or pencil. But when it comes to sharing the gospel of Christ, those are the issues that we die on. What's the takeaway here? Quite simply, this, we're about values and not votes, right? Sounds like a catchy slogan. Maybe I should go work for somebody. It's near impossible for any sermon or worship song to encompass the magnitude and the meaning of the gospel of Christ. Dan can get up here and sing the best set ever, and I can get up here and preach the best sermon ever, but it will never encompass the full meaning and majesty of the gospel of Christ. It's absolutely impossible for a single political party or any politician to do the same. As citizens of this country, we've heard of people having a hard time finding a party that fits their social beliefs. But time and time again, we attempt to shove the entirety of our faith and our beliefs into a mold of a political party. And friends, something has to give. My fear is that time and time again, when we attempt to shove our faith into the mold of a political party, we end up losing parts of that belief. So who has authority? We know that politics will never fit our beliefs, right? We know that, that we should never follow any politician blindly. But should we follow any politician ever? If they don't represent us, if they don't believe the same things we believe, do we follow politics at all? We should. Because the Bible says so. One of the most oft-quoted scriptures is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. A little tiny piece of scripture. I'll throw it up here for you. <clears throat> I'm going to read through this, and then I'll break it down. Don't worry. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment of the wrongdoers. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. There is a decent amount of background for this section of scripture, and I'm going to gloss over it real fast. Um, but suffice it to say that this is one of Paul's letters and if you know anything about Paul's letters, it's an answer to a question. 
So the church in Rome wrote to him and said, hey, we're having some issues. Can you help us out? And Paul writes him a letter back. That's what we've got. We've got one half of a phone conversation. What you need to know about first century Rome, the time in which these Christians were living, is that it was not a pleasant time to be a Christian. There was a lot of persecution, and the church was really attempting to establish itself and flourish in Rome, and they needed absolutely no extra attention. So part of what Paul is telling them is, look, God's going to take care of you. The people who are in charge are supposed to be there. Just do what they say, keep your head down, and the church will grow. They had to watch their step, or the growth of the church would be put in jeopardy. But this is one of those things that you look at sometimes, and, and theology students will whip out these words. They'll say, is that, is that prescriptive, or is it descriptive? The difference between the two is prescriptive theology is for one person at one time. Hey, you, go to Nineveh. He tells Jonah to go to Nineveh because he needs Jonah to go to Nineveh. It doesn't mean at some point in our life we all make a pilgrimage to Nineveh, right? He's prescribing. He says, Jonah, you, I need you. Go to Nineveh. Descriptive theology is all over the place. It says, if you follow me, if you're a believer, do this. It's simple things like love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Is this prescriptive or is it descriptive? Is it still relevant today? When I'm struggling with a topic, I often search out people who I don't agree with first. It's a holdover from my old poli-sci days. I find out what the opposition has to think, and then I come back. A guy that I don't often agree with theologically, a guy named John Piper, great theologian, great writer, we just have some disagreements, wrote an amazing sermon called The Limits of Submission to Man, and it's about this verse. Piper says that Paul is actually making a three-part argument in this scripture. He's saying that first, if there is a government, God put it there. You see in verses 4 and 5, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Right? The rest of that section of scripture says essentially the same thing. They're put in authority on purpose and by God. So if there's a government, it's been put there on purpose. We submit to them because God's plan included them. The second thing Piper says is this. There are two natural consequences if we resist God. Our conscience tells us that we should feel bad because we're opposing God's plan. And we can be punished. Right? We see that in verse 2. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against God against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. You should feel bad. You're, you're going against what God said. And also, if you rebel against the government, they're probably going to punish you. The third thing is the conclusion. He says, therefore, we must be subject to all authority. Verse 5, very plainly. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those 
the same verse. Those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Open and shut, right? People are in charge. God put them there. We listen to them, right? But then Piper brings up a few examples of where that's not right. Are there times that it's okay to disobey? He goes back to Exodus chapter 1, verse 16. Pharaoh fears a growing Hebrew population. And he says, look, the one way we're going to deal with this is we're going to start killing baby boys. And he talks to all the Hebrew midwives and he says, when they come out, kill them. It's actually really funny if you read that scripture, the, the Hebrew midwives kind of nanny nanny boo boo at the pharaohs. One of the things they tell Pharaoh is Hebrew women are much stronger than Egyptian women. As a matter of fact, they call for us and when we show up, the babies are already born and they're hiding them. We're already done. There's nothing we can do about it. He says, fine. When you see a male child, push him in the river. Baby, toddler, doesn't matter. I don't want him anymore. Don't want him around. It happens. A lot of Hebrew boys died as a function of that purge. One of them was placed in a basket, pushed down the Nile, and pulled out by royalty and raised, and his name was Moses. The Hebrew midwives didn't obey God at all, but the scripture says that God looked favorably on them. If you've ever heard the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or for VeggieTales fans, Shadrach and Benny, who work at a chocolate bunny factory, they're in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar sends out a proclamation. And he says, if you hear my royal music, you hear... You hear the trumpets, you hear me coming? There's a golden idol. It's the God that I worship. And you hear that music, you bow down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worship the one true God, not a golden idol. So when they came by, they said, no, thank you. And so Nebuchadnezzar threw him in a furnace. <laughs> but when he opened up the furnace, we all know the story, a lot of us from uh, Sunday school, there they were untouched. God saved them, and in essence, he put a stamp of approval on their disobedience. Look at Peter, John, and Paul, and all the apostles over and over are arrested for preaching the gospel. Paul writes, so much from jail, it's ridiculous. That dude's in jail all the time. But their only crime was preaching the gospel. Yeah, we read their, their writings today. God approved them so much that it's included in his holy book. Clearly, there are times when we can disobey the government and God's okay. Let me be careful. The real question is, when is that okay? The answer seems to lie with how the governing authority is acting. John Piper says this, as long as authorities punish only what is evil and praise only what is good, submission to God will always conform to submission to the authorities. As long as they're doing the right thing, God's law and their law, they're going to line up. 
But if the authorities ever begin to punish the good and reward the bad, as has repeatedly happened in church history, then submission to God will bring us into conflict with authorities. In other words, there is a hierarchy to our obedience. We submit to earthly authority. God put them in place. But if it ever comes in conflict with God's words, we listen to God. Piper ends with this, it's right to resist what God has appointed in order to obey what God has commanded. The application here is incredibly obvious. There are biblical examples of times when it's okay not to listen to earthly authority. There are examples throughout history. Anyone alive during the reigns of Darius of Pilate, Domitian, Bloody Mary, or Adolf Hitler, in my book, has a pass on disobeying authority. If you hid Jews during the Holocaust, if you preached the gospel during those times, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you harbored runaway slaves, if you're a missionary somewhere in the world right now, defying local laws by spreading the gospel, you have a pass. Civil rights workers who helped register voters against the wishes of local authorities. Black men and women who sat at lunch counters and used facilities in protest of segregation, they get a pass. And more recently, those who flaunted local laws about feeding the homeless and who get arrested for their crimes, in my book, you get a pass. There are places and there are times in history where we are compelled to follow the commands of God rather than those of man. Our discernment, and this is so important, church, our discernment of those places and times is what our judgment for our actions will depend on. Our ability to discern whether this was a time and a place to disobey earthly authority, that's how we'll be judged by God. Is this something, in other words, that God would have me do, or am I just playing politics? When in conflict, we need to remember God's law beats man's law every time. What do we do now? So we know that politics is restricted when it comes to representing our beliefs as Christians. An all-or-nothing environment is what has been created in this country and around the world. Sometimes there's no room for compromise between our beliefs and what our governments say is the law of the land. You're with us or you're against us. We also know that God expects obedience from us and that when God's law and man's law diverge, God expects loyalty. God expects our love and our compliance. So what does it mean for you? What then shall we do? We often talk about Dr. Martin Luther King. I feel like people <laughs> kind of conveniently leave out Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, he knew that the way that minorities were being treated in this country was not right. He knew that God would not be pleased with that. This concept in the Bible, it's often expressed in the Latin imago Dei. You've heard David talk about it before. It means in the image of God. It means that every person on this earth, man, woman, child, 
are made in the image of God. When you do this to the least of these, you do this also to me. What we do to people, God takes personally. See, Dr. King fought for equal rights, but how he did it was key. He broke the law. He broke the law by doing things that were technically illegal, but he knew that were morally correct. Sitting at whites-only lunch counters, for instance, was a ridiculous law, but it was against the law. He got arrested quite often, and a lot like Paul, wrote from prison. We're charged with the same choices every day. What must we do to get along in society? And when is God asking us to make a, a decision to honor him above all else? When do we honor man's law? And when should we honor God's law? We already talked about Matthew 25, 40, the parable of the sheep and the goats. It says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. If it's in politics or in our faith or just general ethical discussion, we must always ask what is right. As Christians, God's plan is always what's right. So in the question of what political party is best or how should I vote or what questions are Christian questions and, and what things are just secular things, the answer is always clear. It's what God would have you do. And what God would have you do is seek out the least of creation. Lift them up in the same manner that God lifts you up. And then give God the glory. Sure, there's going to be questions that come up on ballots about hunting licenses and speed limits that don't seem to have any real effect on anyone. But we must always seek to find out, is this in some way going to affect the poor or the voiceless or the otherwise disadvantaged? Because if it is, my first duty is to ensure their safety. We ensure they aren't being taken advantage of and only then can we vote with a clear conscience. Church, I can stand up here and I can quote a bunch of verses verse after verse about what it means to be a good citizen and bow down to earthly governments, pages of verses about the installation of earthly rulers by God and how we're to obey them. I can use all of the education that I've received in political theory and civics to explain to you the importance of being politically active about how low voter turnout has affected this country in elections and about how bad that can be for an active democracy. I can even make arguments about the ethics of participating in politics and how moral standards have seemingly declined in this country, but one truth remains. There's gonna come a day when we're accountable for the choices that we make in life. And there's two things that are certain. God will wanna know if we have held the laws set forth in scripture. And God will want to know an account of our life on earth. If we obeyed those set above us in places in authority, and that if we didn't, why we didn't. 
And if it was purely political or if it was because we knew morally the authority in that situation was wrong. There will also come a reckoning for those that sit back and watch those that took advantage of their earthly authority to do evil. God will want to know why in those instances we did nothing. Therein lies the crux of the issue. We must pray. We pray for discernment in all matters concerning politics. It's just an extension of power as a citizen to do moral good or harm, right? To seek out the least of these and to love them as Christ would have, our place in heaven will probably never be an excuse to trespass or get out of a speeding ticket. But the authority has been left to those in charge here on earth. Our place in the kingdom of God dictates that we feed those who cannot feed themselves, that we clothe those who need clothing, that we provide shelter for those who need it, defend the poor, the orphaned, and the widow. We comfort the imprisoned, and we welcome those that seek refuge from danger. Next month, we all have the opportunity to step into a voting booth. We'll give our political affiliation, and we'll get our color-coded ballot and a pen, a cute little I vote American uh, flag sticker. But when we walk out, when we've cast our ballot, we have to remember one thing, that our first and our ultimately only allegiance in this whole process, in this whole world, is to God. <laughs>